If you would join me, uh, Matthew chapter 9, um, I hope that you're getting a signal uh, live and on time and all of that. Uh, if not, then you're watching this a little later for some of you, no doubt, which is still fine. Matthew chapter 9, in case uh, the volume wasn't up or you just now tuned in, let me reiterate, obviously next week is our regathering time, uh, following almost three months of not being able to gather together. Uh, and so uh, if you're comfortable with coming, we'd love to see you next week. We do encourage you to come a little bit early. That way we can most efficiently uh, make our seating. We also mentioned that next week we plan to partake of the Lord's Supper. And those items will be made, made available as you walk in. And so uh, if you want to have your heart ready is the main reason I'm saying that. Uh, but if you cannot come, you, you feel it would be best for you to stay home. And you would like to come by on Thursday or Friday morning. Uh, to pick up the items that you would need for communion to do at your own home with us next Sunday morning, then if you would, uh, contact the office and set up a time. We wouldn't want you to come down and no one be here uh, for you to give you those items. So if you would, uh, get again, have your hearts prepared for next Sunday morning, all right? Matthew chapter 9, we're going to, Lord willing, finish out chapter 9, and I'm going to finish up the last four verses this morning, verses 35 through 38, and really it's a culmination of this passage. So everybody, whether you're here, whether you're at home, you are going to want to have your Bible open, so get you a copy of God's Word. Let's get ready, because I don't want us to kind of be our minds a thousand different places and miss really the most important part, or as important as any part of our, our service today, and that's what we're about to do, and that's reading this text. Would you look at Matthew 9, verse 35? Matthew writes, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Already we're getting a clue. This is a bit of a summation. He's summarizing a section in his book. Look at verse 35 again. So having explained what Jesus has been doing, he says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. What's he doing? A threefold ministry, teaching in their synagogues. So Jesus is traveling around, villages have no walls, cities typically in that day would have walls, that would be a differentiation. He's going to go in, he's going to find their synagogues on, on Saturday, it could be a Thursday, it could be a Monday. And the synagogue service is going to have prayers, they're going to read out of the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, and they're going to read a section at least out of the Prophets. And so as Jesus' his disciples would make their way, there were opportunities for Christ to teach what had been read. I don't know if he decided what would be read or if it was already predetermined, but no matter where they went in the Old Testament, he was able to teach its true meaning. Look again at verse 35. What's he doing throughout the cities and villages? Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So you'll get an idea of his ministry. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, wherever he went, Jesus drew a crowd. And I don't think this means like one time he saw a crowd, this happens. I think it means wherever he went and there was a crowd, this recurred again and again. Though he no doubt had a crowd of people that would follow him from village and city to city, but each one that he would go to, new people would come. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds with his eyes, the idea, he had compassion for them. 
It's a very specific word, a very strong word. He sees the crowd. He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus looks on the crowds, they, to them, he translates in his mind, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Then that caused this to happen. He said to his disciples, his close followers, watch what he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, get to work. That's not what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. I'm already getting to the main point just by reading this. Therefore, pray earnestly. Like, real, don't go through the motions of prayer. Don't get in a posture of prayer. Don't just say the words of prayer without actually connecting with God. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. You have this harvest. It's plentiful. So pray to the Lord of the harvest, a specific prayer. Pray to Him to send out laborers into His harvest. That's the prayer. That'll be the main point when we get to it in the third section this morning. So we have four areas that we want to look at. We kind of have four verses. I'm not saying these fall exactly along the lines of the four verses, but the first one does. It's verse 35. Would you notice with me an overview of Jesus' ministry in Galilee? That's how I think this is. Can I propose to you that verse 35 is actually a summary of chapters, everybody with me? Chapters 5 through 9. So we're closing out a five-chapter section. Remember, we had five, chapters 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the teaching of Jesus. That's the preaching of Jesus. Chapter 4, just before we launched into chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus was preaching. And what he preached was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is bringing the kingdom of heaven. He is the kingdom of heaven. A right relationship with him is being in the kingdom. So he's preaching this. But we also have in chapters 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, teaching and his preaching. It's his content and his exhortation to respond to the content. So I wonder what Jesus is teaching in these synagogues, right? Well, we kind of have an idea, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But then that's followed by these miracles, We've just had episode after, for weeks and weeks and weeks. We've been looking at these various miracles. Hold your spot. Hold your spot. Hopefully you have your Bible open like I asked. You're not going to see this on the screen. Put your spot there, verse 35. Go back to chapter 4. Flip back, if you would, chapter 4. Everybody should be doing this right now. Look at chapter 4 and look at verse 23. And maybe if you could just hold your page up where you can see both at the same time. Then I want to read verse 23, and you read along with me. Notice how almost identical this is. Here we go. And So here's before Matthew gets into the details of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He makes a summary statement. And he went throughout all Galilee. Watch this phrase. It's almost word for word with chapter 9. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And here he adds the words, among the people. So he went throughout, instead of all the cities and villages, here it says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And that's basically the same thing as verse 35, as we're back now in chapter 9. Can I propose to you 
that what's happening here is Matthew is telling us, as he's summarizing these previous five chapters, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is what he taught in the synagogues, and all of these miracles that we have seen him. You remember the town we've been focusing on. It's one main area. Sometimes it's outside. So the Sermon on the Mount is a little outside of, Gal- of, of Capernaum. But these miracles, these, these nine episodes of miracles, more than nine miracles, but nine episodes of miracles have been happening all around Capernaum. So I think what, what Matthew's doing as he hits verse 39, he's summing up a section and he's saying all that Jesus did in these last five chapters, he did the same things in all of these other 204 villages and cities throughout Galilee. So if you'll think in your mind, so the historians tell us that Galilee at this time kind of did a swoosh like this, or from your perspective, it would be like that. So about 60 miles long and about 35 miles wide, about 204 cities and villages. And I've heard an estimate of the number of the smallest of those villages. And when we do the math on what the historian Josephus gave us, here's what we conclude. Two to three million people at least that Jesus is going around in about a two-year time period. So about two years, you think, okay, that's 700 and some days, 204 cities, various sizes. In essence, what, what Matthew is telling us is that something about the size and the population of Chicago and beyond Chicago was just totally eradicated of disease and is exposed to the teaching and the preaching of Jesus over a two-year period. That's an astounding ministry. And so Matthew then, in verse 35, not only says the the breadth of his ministry, he tells us what it is about. Three key words. He was teaching. That's taking content and making it understandable for people so that, again, they can understand what's being taught. He was teaching. The word next word is proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming there means a herald. As a king sends a herald with a message, except Jesus is the king. He's his own herald. He's heralding. The word here, what it means is preaching. So what's Jesus' ministry? Three key words. Teaching, preaching, and healing. So can I say his ministry was helpful, healing, and his ministry, the whole tone of it was hopeful. What's he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching the good news. The takeaway from his ministry is not rules and getting beaten down. It is being uplifted and being helped in a specific way that that works for you, that met people's needs. Now, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to propose to you that Jesus' healings, actually, I can't say this for sure. I got ahead of myself just for a moment. Would you write this down? Four quick thoughts about these healings. I'm going to go a little bit of reverse order, okay? So Matthew says his ministry was teaching, proclaiming, preaching, and healing, A note that we had about a year ago when we were back in chapter number four. Yes, it's been that long. We spent 18 weeks in chapter five alone, right? So that was a long time ago. We took a similar note to this. Would you write it down? Four things that we know about Jesus's healing ministry. Number one, we know that it brought relief to hurting people. We see these words, disease, affliction. People had real diseases. When they come in contact with Jesus, they don't have a disease anymore. People had real afflictions. I mean, like an event, something happened to them. We're not told all of these details, but no doubt there were broken things and, 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 and missing things. And Jesus comes along and they're no longer broken and they're no longer missing and they're no longer twisted and, and, and turned out. 
And he's making them whole, whether it be a disease or an affliction. So he's helping hurting people. The second thing we know that his, that his healings did is they show his infinite divine power. Infinite divine power. We don't have power over disease. That's very clear in our country in the last three months. Jesus had power over disease. Demons are extremely powerful beings. Christ has power over demons. He even showed that he had power over death itself. Even someone already passed on to the next world. He's able to pull them back into their body at his touch. So they show his infinite power. Third thing, you want to write this down. His healings were universal and complete. Universal. In other words, not one time. Not one time do we find a person that comes up to Christ to be healed and they get turned away or kind of covered up in the crowd. Don't let that one come up here. I can't do that. They were, his healings were universal and they were complete. Notice, he doesn't heal partially. He doesn't say, let me heal one of your eyes. Let me heal one of your ears. Let me heal one of your legs. That's better than you have. If you'll get you a crutch or two, if I can heal the one, then you can kind of make your way better than you have been. He doesn't do that. He doesn't heal partially. He doesn't say, listen, let's start on this course of action. I probably will be swinging back by your area in about a month. Let's have another consultation, and let's see if we can finalize or, or improve you a little bit more. He's not a doctor. He's a healer. And then lastly, his healings were very attractive, very attractive. People came out. They drew crowds of people. Now, here's what I was going to say a while ago. I don't know this for sure, but knowing human nature, I'm going to propose to you that the average person who's looking at this threefold ministry of Jesus, his teaching, his preaching, and his healing, I think knowing human nature, the average person would put the focus, they would think his focus is on the healing aspect because it's very helpful to them. And this is what probably draws the largest portion of the crowd is the healing, whether they need it themselves or they want to see it performed on someone. They would put the healing at the front of the line. Matthew doesn't. If you'll remember, I'm not going to go back there now. In Matthew 4, verse 23, and in Matthew 9, verse 35, Matthew puts the teaching and then the preaching and then the healing. Why? Because the teaching sets up for the preaching. And the healing, though it may happen ahead of the teaching and preaching at times, it is not the predominant thing. It is not the dominant thing. In fact, can I propose to you, again, not on your, in your notes, three things about these healings that Jesus did. Here they are. Ready? They help people. But even greater than helping people, they actually validate who he is. They prove they are signs that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. He does have this power, so they serve as signs. But as much as anything, these healings prepare for his teaching and his preaching. Can I ask you, think about this. If your goal was to expose two and a half to three million people over a 60 by 35 mile area in a couple of years, pre-radio, pre-television, pre-internet, two and a half, three million people. I mean, you, you, you kind of get a feel how many people are here on a Sunday morning that we kind of feel full, right? Oh, okay, wait, we had 225, we had 240 people. Oh, we're kind of full. Two and a half to three million people or more. How in the world are you going to minister to that many people and get the message out? I'll tell you how genuine healings drew the crowd. And what did it set the stage for? Yes, it helped them. But it sets the stage for Jesus' teaching, which sets the stage for his preaching. And those, everything is connected. 
Why is this important? Again, we'll get to this in a moment. You'll see it on the screen. But if you kind of want to, even on your own, start filling in some blanks. I want to use a very important word here, all right? Why is the teaching and the preaching so important? Well, everyone listening, eternally effective ministry, and I mean eternally effective. We can give someone some food and some clothes. You can help them physically, and that is a great thing. The church should be about that. We as Christians should be about that, individually and corporately. But if we want to have eternally effective ministry, then we must reach people's minds And if I had room on your handout, when you write that word, maybe above it you want to write, and will. Eternally effective ministry must reach people's minds and their will, not just their body. And that's why the healings, their main purpose was to validate who he was and to point them and to prepare them for his teaching and his preaching. You say, Jeff, why is this hitting our minds so important? All right, I need you to focus. Eternal life, and that's why I mean eternally effective. Eternal life is only received by faith. You're going to hear me say it multiple times today. You've heard me say it many, many times before, but this is a fact. Here's here's where it applies. Eternal life, that eternal kind of life that we all want, only comes by faith in Jesus, right? But the problem is we're not born knowing that piece of information, We're not born knowing that it is by faith. So here's the key. Eternal life is only by faith, but the faith is in something. The faith is in someone. Listen, the faith is not in anything. The faith is not in nothing. I really believe there are people who are walking around Anderson this morning who they know enough to know that, oh, yeah, you go to heaven by faith. And here's here's their thought. You go to heaven by faith. And so here's their faith. I believe I'm going to heaven. What? You go to heaven by faith. And so I believe I have eternal life. I believe I'm going. I believe I'm going to heaven. I believe I'm going to heaven. Like, what, what are you doing? I'm having faith. You're having faith in your faith. Are you having faith in what someone told you one time that you have to have faith to go to heaven? Listen, it's not faith in that. It's not faith in nothing. It's not faith in anything. It's faith in a specific thing. That's why content matters. That's why specific truth matters. That's why we labor to teach and to preach. Guys, listen to me. That's why you understanding matters. That's why the people that you know understanding matters. That's why it matters. It's Christ in the promises of God the Father, in the death, the burial, the resurrection, in the blood of Christ. These are our specific teaching. So all that physical help, though as wonderful as it is, it sets up for Christ's teaching ministry. And what does this teaching ministry do? Watch. It sets up for his preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is to, based on the content of the teaching, to exhort someone to respond to that content. Teaching is that the only way to heaven is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then preaching says, then trust him. Can I tell you this right now? Someone is watching right now, and you're not a Christian yet. Could I encourage you before we move forward any further? The only way to heaven is by faith in Christ. So put your trust. Turn from your sins. Turn from your sins. 
Repent of those. Change your mind about yourself. You're not good enough. Change your mind about your sin. It's worse than you think it is. Change your mind about Jesus and turn to him right now and put your faith in him. Christ was a teacher. Christ was a preacher. Christ was a healer. Number two this morning, coming out of verse 36, we find that Jesus had compassion for mankind's great needs. Let's look at Jesus' compassion for mankind's great needs. Look at verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, so he does these miracles, he starts teaching. Man, the crowds start swelling. More and more people, no doubt word goes ahead to the next town and people are following him from the previous town. When he saw, note that word, he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What this verse means, and watch, this compassion is a strong word. What verse 36 is telling us is that when Jesus saw crowds, it, I mean, he saw them, it stirred his emotions so strongly that he felt, literally felt, pity and sympathy and empathy literally in his stomach. That's the idea. I mean, it affected. If you've almost like, man, that, that just made me feel almost sick. As Jesus, I'm not saying like you make me sick and disgusted. I mean the needs that he felt sympathy. He felt empathy for them. It literally affected him. He's called a man of sorrows, not because he was a sorrowful person, not because he felt sorry for himself. He was constantly engaging with our sorrows and he was feeling our sorrows. Let that sink in. Jesus is God. When God sees your pitiful condition, it affects him. And it was when he saw the crowds. So I want to ask you a question. When is the last time you saw something that you can say it literally made me feel it in my gut. I mean, I felt it. There was something, it was so pitiful that my sympathy, I literally felt it physically. Was it watching a children's hospital commercial? Was it watching another commercial that's asking for $19 a month and they showed little dogs shivering in the cold or standing in the mud or laying in the mud? And with the music playing, and listen, those things ought to move us. When is the last time? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you saw something, and maybe after you worked through anger, righteous anger, it literally affected you physically in pity and sorrow and sympathy, empathy. Maybe it's seeing a man face down. Look at verse 36. Let me tell you why I'm using that. The Bible says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were har harassed and helpless. I'll give you an idea as, in a whole, over, uh, as a whole of that word, these two words together. But I first want to look at that second word, helpless. Listen to how Barclay defines it. He says the Greek word behind the word helpless means laid prostrate. Let that sink in. This is how Christ views the crowd. He's laid prostrate. He continues, he says, this word can describe a man prostrated with drink. You understand? He's, he's drunk. He's so drunk, he's laid prostrate. Or, he says, it can be used to describe a man laid low with mortal wounds. 
This person is dying. I mean, they're flat on their face, or they're just rolling on the side, or about to, or this person's throwing up, or they're, they're literally, their face is laying in their own vomit. And I know when you and I see that, you know what we do? Jesus saw these people as like sheep without a shepherd. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. Arrogant, religious hypocrites disgust Jesus. But sinners, beaten down by their sin, did not disgust him. They moved him to pity. I know what we do. You stupid sheep. Now look what you got. You got in that thicket. You deserve what you get. You dumb. You just keep wandering away. Or you're going to get killed. There's a lion over there. Got what they deserve. Dumb sheep wandering away. You know what Jesus says? Come on. They're sheep. He feels sorry for sheep. Because we are ignorant and foolish and weak and unprotected and unfed. That's the idea. Christ is looking on these kinds of people. Prostrate, just laid flat, dying, just in a drunken stupor, literally helpless and harassed. Again, like a man laying flat on his face, arms behind his back, and someone else just got their knee right in his neck. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes. Come on, what are you doing? It's ridiculous. All that's happening because of that is also ridiculous, but that's out of line. Someone should have stopped that. That's what Jesus sees when he looks at this crowd. A beat down people, literally. Here's what Christ sees. A group of people, crowds, masses, just laying like flat on their face and sin just has them right on the neck. Can't get up. Can't breathe down here and beat down. Sickness. Disease. The religious leaders aren't helping. Their religious leaders are actually part of the process. They're not relieving them. They're adding on more and more burden. These people, what these two words mean, they're tired. They're just weary. They're beat down. What Christ sees is a hurting, helpless, scattered, purposeless, no clue what life is about, no direction, no purpose, just day to day and frankly, really tired of it. This moves Christ to compassion. What did he see? He sees people that are way too concerned about the temporal. What does he see? He sees people, listen, who have no clue about the eternal danger that is headed their way and will wipe them out and they will be in torments for eternity. They have no idea that it's out there and what's even worse, even if they could see it, they can't do anything about it. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus definitely cared greatly about people's physical pain. And he cared greatly about their emotional sorrow. Please listen. Jesus cared about that. But we know that he cared far more about their eternity, their eternal plight. He cared about... Now, I'm saying that for this reason. All that I just described, that's not just Jesus' audience and congregation and crowd... Guys, that's where you're at this morning. That's in this building with just a few of us right now. That that I just described, it's just people who are laboring and beat down and it's easy to get weary and struggle and, and fighting sin and sickness and disease and pain and sorrow. And Jesus looks at that and he feels sorry and empathetic and sympathetic and he pities. Notice verse 37, his response. He says, then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is this harvest? I'm very quickly going to give you two ideas. Because, so there's two schools of thought here. Um, I'll give the first one. It's not the one that I hold, nor is it the one the majority of people. But because the way this idea of harvesting is used in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation, the predominant view throughout Scripture is of a harvesting that is coming at the end of time, the day of the Lord, when the Lord of the harvest will send the angels and they will reap and harvest lost people who have rejected the Lord and rejected God and chosen to live in sin. And they will be harvested, harvested and they will be put in eternal torments. There's one view. I don't think that is the proper view here because notice what he says. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there's much judgment coming on this crowd. That doesn't seem to be the tone here. Because then he says, but the laborers are few, so pray that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers. What is he asking for? Pray for more judgment reapers to come. No, that's not that silly. The prayer is because of this great harvest of judgment that's coming, the prayer is for workers to go pluck as many as we can out of that judgment. And that may be true, but I'm going to propose to you it's a different thing altogether. I think the harvest is plentiful that Christ sees because it's one... He sees opportunity. He sees a great opportunity, a great chance that is put before him. I think what he's saying is there is great potential all around. The harvest is plentiful. So again, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Jesus not only sees this crowd as like sheep with no shepherd, wandering about, defenseless, getting ready to run out of food. They're hungry, thirsty. Not just that. He also sees this crowd of people as a a, a valuable crop so yes he pities us on the one hand but also he values this valuable crop and he wants them to be reaped oh the potential that is here i think what christ is saying to his disciples is pray why now here we go because the need is great all around you what he told them is true of us today is everybody with me the need is great all around you the readiness The readiness, because of all the suffering, because of the harassment and the helplessness, because of all that situation, there is so much readiness to be harvested for the Lord. So they're ready. They're everywhere. The need is great. The readiness is great. The results will be great. That's what Christ is saying. I think he's saying the results, many are going to come in, but it's going to take many laborers. Therefore, pray. Because it's going to take so many laborers, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers. And that takes us to the third and the main point this morning. Not only do we see kind of an overview of Christ's ministry in Galilee, and in verse 36, we see his compassion that he felt literally physically. But number three, we see an explicit command to pray. Couldn't be more clear. Sometimes I'm looking at these passages, I'm trying to preach, and every now and then I'll have a passage, a few verses. There is no literal action step, no command from the Lord. And so we have to step back, kind of make applications, and draw to maybe other areas of of, of Scripture. This is very clear. Here's the main action step is in verse 37. Harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly. The need is so great and the readiness is so great and the reward and and the people that are going to come, 
that can be reaped is so high, the potential is so great, you better pray. We think differently. It's so great, man, we better get out there and get to work. Christ says, it's so great, you better pray. This is the main point today. I want us to feel this. I want us to implement this, this coming week. I want us to implement this, this week. Join me. That's how we'll finish this message today. There's an invitation for you to join me in in obeying verse 38 this week. Note the place of priority that Christ gives prayer. Don't miss this. Note the place of priority that Jesus gives to prayer. This is maybe not an exact word-for-word quote, but it was John Bunyan. I looked it up later. I remember the quote. Couldn't remember who it was. Typed it in. John Bunyan's name came up, something to this effect. Now, before you write it, before you even see it, I want you to hear the whole thing. Everybody listen. Bunyan writes to us, and he says the following. You can do more than pray. Let me say it again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you pray. That's a valuable quote because he's so right. It's in line with the whole tone of this passage right here. Yes, you can do more than pray. You can do more than pray and you should do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Two other very godly men who've gone on to be with the Lord. Let me share what they said. Martin Luther worded it this way. He personalized this idea. Really let this sink in because we have days like this. He says, he looked at his schedule and he says, work, work, work. From morning till evening. Work, work, work. Have you ever had a day like that? Just like, I've got, I've got so much to do. I'm going to be working from the morning literally. I'm, I'm probably going to miss. I'm going to have to hole in the middle of the day to get me. I'm, I got work, a whole day and then some. Work, listen to what he says. Work, work, work from morning till evening. In fact, I have so much to do. I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Jeff Bartlett doesn't think like that. I'm telling you right now. What he's saying is, I have so much to do, I will never get it all done if I don't get the Lord's favor upon me. Bishop J.C. Ryle words it this way. I really want to hone in here for a moment. Ryle says, personal working. Listen. He says, personal working for souls is good. You know what he's talking about? Sharing your faith. Trying to win someone to Christ. Bishop Ryle says, personal working for souls is good. Giving money, but praying is best of all. Hear that again. Personal working for souls is good. Giving money is good, but praying is best of all. I just gave you three things. We know that this kind of sermon always comes back to these three things. Praying, giving, going. I want you to be honest. You may be sitting there with five other people. You need to block them out and you need to answer for yourself. You may be sitting alone. You may be watching this a year from now. I have no idea. Answer this question within your heart. Out of these three things, praying, giving toward the work of the Lord and it being expanded locally and around the world and then going, this idea of literally going to someone right here in my own town or going to someone on the other side of town or to another state or sending people or going around the world. So we have these three things. 
How many, be honest, how many of those three things are you currently involved in? I do hope that Graceview has some folks who literally go three for three. They're praying the Lord of the harvest. They are soul winning themselves, sharing the gospel, and they put their money where their heart is. They're giving. I'm assuming there are some that are two out of three, and I don't know what that two would be. Where are you at? Do you say, well, I do this one, but I don't do the other two, or I do those two, but I don't do that one? Wherever you're falling in this, I want you to listen carefully. Do not just give money in the place of prayer. Do not just go out and try to evangelize without soaking it with prayer. Don't just do that. Because if there's one of these, you say, I I can only do one. You need to do all three. But if you're only going to do one, pray. Pray. Ryle continues. Why has he put this one at the top? He says, by prayer we reach him. Him, listen, without whom work and money are alike in vain. I need to read that line again. By prayer we reach him. Without whom work and money are alike in vain. We obtain the aid of the Holy Ghost. That's key. I'll just turn there. You'll see it on your screen, I think. Psalm 20, um, yes, Psalm 27. I'm sorry, Psalm 127. Look at verse 1. This gives us an idea of why Christ says, the harvest is so great, you better pray. Verse, Psalm 127, verse 1. Um, here's what the Bible says. Unless, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Guys, that does not mean this. A developer goes out and buys a piece of property, thinks he can fit 80 houses on that property. He he doesn't go home and just pray and pray and pray and come back a month later to see if the Lord has built a house on his property. He had done a thing. No, listen, builders have to build. Builders have to build. But the text, what it's saying is, builders can build all they want, but if the Lord's favor is not on that building. Hey, watchmen on the city walls as people are coming to attack, maybe in the nighttime, you don't read this and say, well, again, the Lord's looking over the city and anything I'm doing is vain anyway. I'm just going to go play cards all night. Watch Netflix on. No, you stand on that wall and you be vigilant. But you know the whole time, I can be as vigilant as I want. I can be as dedicated and keep my eyes open all I want. If the Lord doesn't protect our city, it doesn't matter. I wish I had room in your notes for the following thought. God, hear me, God's favor is the crucial and deciding factor in our work. God's favor is the crucial and deciding factor in our work. I know it is in mine. I don't know what you guys all do. I know what I do. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have to study. I have to study. Have to. But I can study all I want. At the end of the day, it is, at the end of the day, I need to study. I have to study. But at the end of the week, it literally, it's all riding on God anyway. If he doesn't give something, then he doesn't give something. And you're going to get my ideas, and that's the last thing we need. Except the Lord build the house. So what's Jesus saying? The need is so great and the readiness is so great. The potential and the fruit that's going to come in is so great. So great you better start with prayer. Now what I want you to do is in the next few minutes I want you to write down. We could could put ten. 
I want to give you four things. Everybody that hears this, whether you're here in this room right now or you're writing this at home live or you're doing it later, four things that I want us, that we need to be in prayer in the spirit of verse 37 and 38. Number one, pray for God. Very simple. This is the, this is the request in verse 38. Pray for God to raise up an army of evangelistic Christians. We need to start praying. Lord, would you raise up an army of evangelistic Christians here in Anderson, here in South Carolina? Lord, like raise up a whole army. I mean, like, Lord, raise up a whole army of evangelistic Christians. Guys, I'll tell you right now, I would love to see us start praying for this and to see the Lord answer this to such an effect that we got to like knock this back wall, like knock it out and start building out toward the parking lot. Not because everybody's leaving some other church to run over to this church, but because, man, there's a whole army of evangelistic Christians. And they're just like winning people to the Lord and inviting people to come here by the Lord. And we just can't contain them in the old way we had. We're just got to start knocking walls. That's, that's what I would love. How does it happen? Well, we got to go get busy. Get to that. Pray. Pray for the Lord. God, would you raise up an army of evangelistic Christians? Number two, what do you pray? I'm going to challenge you. Pray for understanding of the gospel. God, would you give me a greater understanding of the gospel? you got to hit people's mind. If you want to have an eternally effective ministry, you have to hit their mind and their will with teaching and preaching. So can I offer this to you? To pray for more laborers in the spiritual harvest that Christ is talking about obviously means what we're praying for are more teachers, more preachers. That have to be preachers as in the sense of a pastor, people that are speaking forth the truth. So what we need to pray for is, Lord, give me a greater understanding of this gospel that Jesus preached, this good news that Jesus preached. Give me more of that. Can I offer to you, I hope this isn't news, it's just reiterating, the Christian life and being a disciple of Christ is not about pouring through the Bible for biblical principles to implement into my life so that I become more godly. It's not even just about doing that and becoming a worshiper. You say, well, sure it is. That's the Christian life. Guys, no. Being a disciple is doing that and letting the Lord use you to disciple other people, to make other converts and help them start being disciples who go make disciples. Guys, if we ever understand this thought, it literally will revolutionize and change the way we read our Bibles. It'll change the way we listen to things. We will start reading and listening with the intent not just to live it in my life, but I need to know this so well that not only do I live it, but I'm able to and keep teaching it and teaching it until people are living it out themselves and then they start becoming a disciple again who goes and makes disciples. It's pretty clear what's happening here at the end of chapter 9. Jesus has been doing all the ministry and now he's saying, hey guys, we've got 3 million people here we've got to get to. There's 204 of these villages. We've given a lot of time and attention to Capernaum. It's time for you guys to start praying for the Lord to send out more laborers into the harvest. And oh, by the way, chapter 10, here's why I said this is a transitional text because what's going to happen in chapter Sending out his... Where does it start? Pray, and then you'll be sent. I have to ask you, every person listening, 
If a lost person's eternity depended on your accuracy of presenting the gospel, you understand what I'm saying? Their whole eternity depending on your accuracy of presenting the gospel, the one way to heaven, would you be able to do it? Could you do that? Could you do it? Unfortunately, there's someone, if they're being honest, someone out there is saying, I don't know that I could. Can I ask you this? If you are a Christian, why can't you? Why couldn't you accurately make a presentation, even a compelling presentation of the gospel? Why not? They tell us that most Christians will die without having ever won another person to the Lord. Be different. I know one of the main reasons people say is, I don't understand the gospel. I don't really know what to say. So I'm gonna, I wish I had a whole page to give this to you. If you want it, I mean, again, we looked at this a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. What is the gospel? Obviously, what I'm about to read to you does not have all the texts that go with it. But Mark Dever, I'm going to borrow a few times from him in the remainder of the message this morning. Dever offers the following. You say, okay, hang on, Jeff, hold on. I need to really pay attention here. Because I need to pray to the Lord to raise up a whole army of evangelistic Christians. And I need to really start praying, Lord, give me a greater understanding of this gospel. What is the gospel? Dever writes the following. Here it comes. You ready? In his great love. Act like you've never heard this. Really hear it. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus. Lived a perfect life and died on the cross. Thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. But he's not done. Here's the gospel. He rose again. Let me find my place. He rose again from the dead showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted, unquote. Jesus' death, what, the, what he's saying here, what is the gospel? Jesus' death by, literally, here's more of the good news, the way we receive that forgiveness is just by faith. That's the good news. You don't have to do anything magnanimous or sinlessly on, on your part or work for it. Literally, the good news is that just by faith, you get to become the child of God who is totally at peace with God because all of our sins have been removed because Christ paid for them on the cross and was buried and rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. Next, what should we pray for? Number three, pray for compassion for eternal souls. Um, can I just do something real quick? Can we get a different chair uh, back there? Literally, that's... Sorry about that. There's a real squeaky chair in our auditorium, and it's, uh, it, it's disrupting me. All right. What should we pray? Number one, Lord, would you raise up an army of evangelistic Christians? Number two, Father, would you give me a greater understanding of the gospel? Do this. Pray for compassion for eternal souls. Hold your spot, Matthew. Go, if you would, quickly. Uh, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In fact, 
uh, we're going to spend probably the better part of the remainder of our time in Romans 9 and 10. Look at Romans 9. Pray for this. I'm going to give you the extreme version. Obviously, some of you are familiar with this. Paul writes in Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Man, this is strong words. He doubled down on how truthful he's being. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He just gave four things. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying in Christ. I'm telling you. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness. My conscience says I'm telling the truth in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can vouch that my conscience is true. What I'm about to say, verse 2, what, what are you about to say? Paul says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is a heavy, heavy burden. This is like that compassion that Christ saw. Like literally it affected him physically. Paul says, I always have this. Was it, was it over? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What Paul is, and again, not going to at all. Paul is saying, if I could, and it would be binding and final, and there's no take backs, Paul said, I would give up my salvation and I would be accursed and separated from Christ if the Jewish nation, my people, could come to Christ and they would get salvation. I would go to hell for eternity if they could go to heaven for eternity. I would make that trade. Guys, I'm going to tell you straight up, that is so unnatural. You and I are selfish to the core. We don't think this way. That's why we have to ask God, God, would you give me spirit of burden? I want to feel it. I need to feel it, Lord. It comes and it goes. Maybe right now you're saying, this is the farthest thing from me. I have none of it. Pray for God to give it to you. And then number four, pray this. Flip over one page if in your Bible possibly. Look at chapter 10, verse number 1, and let's write this down. What are you going to pray? Pray for specific people or groups to be saved. Pray for specific people. Pray for specific groups to be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, we see Paul doing that. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, we already saw that earlier, and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the nation of Israel. It's very clear. It's a very specific prayer. Very simple, straightforward. That they may be saved. He says, my desire and my prayer to God is that they may be saved. Today is the 31st of the month. So if any of you, I don't know, I may be the only one. And I can't tell you I do it every day. But if any of you still have this Frontline Missions International prayer map. Today, we prayed for Iran. 79 point something million people, 98% Muslim, were praying for a specific group of people. But further, I'm going to invite you. Pray, God, would you raise up an army of evangelistic Christians? God, would you give me a greater understanding of the gospel? God, would you give me such a strong compassion and love for lost souls that I can't stand there having the gospel in me and not share it to them, knowing that they need it. I can't just keep it in. Give me that much and then, Lord, I'm going to name some people, specific ones. Guys, I can't say for sure how many folks that have come to our church and gotten saved. Some have been saved, and I don't hear about it until months later. They communicate back on such and such a time. Others, I know I haven't heard about it yet, or I'll hear through the grapevine. But some, they have told me I got saved at that time or that time. I'm not here to tell you that all of the ones who've come to faith in Christ had someone praying for them. Can I throw out a few names, though? 
that in the not too distant past, I'm guaranteeing you they, they, they had literal people, specific people were praying to God for them to be saved. Once here this morning, literally people were praying for someone named Christy before she knew they were praying. Like by name, God, would you save this girl? Two little boys, Good News Club. To my knowledge, I don't think I've seen them. But I know they were being prayed for. I know Brandon was praying for them. I remember us praying in staff meeting. And I don't know who else was praying. Little, little kid named Isaiah and some little boy named Braxton. Pray for specific people. There's a couple in our church got saved in February. Kyle and Ashley. Literally, people were praying for them. Like people by name to God for them. We even did it on Wednesday nights. Bible study with the man's. We're in there praying that they'll get saved. It happened a few weeks later. Pray for specific people. Ask the Lord. Lay them on your heart. Before we hit the last point quickly, let me say this. Hold your spot in Romans, but I'm looking at the end of, verse, of chapter 9, verse 38 in Matthew. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord. We talk about the sovereignty of God. We talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I know that makes a lot of debate and a lot of critiquing. And who's on this side of that and who's on that side? And we bring up these words like election and foreknowledge, predestination and chose and all that. People get very heated. Can I listen to me? If you can't say in your heart that you're doing what Matthew 9 verse 38 says to do, if, you, if you're over here, and your conclusion is that God is sovereign, therefore I don't need to pray, then you've totally misunderstood the sovereignty of God. The Lord of the harvest is saying, pray to me that I will send laborers into the harvest. And apparently when he spurs up his people to want to pray to him, that's a sign that he's getting ready to save some people. Okay? If you think, I don't need to tell anyone about the Lord Jesus Christ because I believe in the sovereignty and election and foreknowledge and predestination of God, then you've totally misunderstood what God's message is to us. But equally on the other side, if all you do is sit and critique and whine and gripe and complain and accuse God for what the Bible says about Him, and yet you don't tell anyone about the Lord and you don't pray to the Lord of the harvest, then you don't really believe what you say you believe. You're lying, you're fooling yourself. If you believe it's man's free will, then you of all people better be praying and you of all people better be sharing your faith all the time. If you don't, just stop talking about it. You don't have the right. Now that I got that out of my system, number four. But you notice lastly, so there's this explicit, explicit, Clear, direct command, pray. But along with that, there is an implicit call to evangelize. Now, this one's implicit. It's not direct and straightforward. This one's implied. I think, isn't it clearly? Hey, guys, listen. If I'm a billionaire, and I'm concerned for someone's financial condition, and I'm praying to God to help those people in their financial condition. I've got this, this buddy over here, and he had a... Hard time making his house payment last couple of months. I'm a billionaire. Listen, I need to pray for the Lord's help. But if I'm really burdened and praying, I'm going to give him. I'm going to help him. What's implied in Christ's prayer is, oh, by the way, are you really praying for God to raise up evangelistic Christians? Well, as you're praying, it's going to result in you going 
Write this down. I believe this. Nothing is more important in the Christian's life than prayer and worship. I mean that. Nothing. Nothing is more important than prayer and worship. Nothing. But when prayer and worship are in their proper perspective and in their proper place, I'm telling you what it's going to lead to. It's going to lead to us serving the Lord. We're not just going to stay praying and stay worshiping all the time. It's going to result in our serving the Lord. And if we're praying for the Lord to raise, like, think about that. If we're really praying, Lord, would you raise up some evangelistic Christians? If that's your real prayer and you do this over and over, then as the opportunity presents itself and you're interacting with other people, then you are going to become evangelistic. You're going to become evangelistic. You're going to share your faith. And we have two last things and I'll be done this morning. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago actually, on Wednesday nights as we were going through one of Dever's books, he shared with us. So I want to touch on this quickly. What evangelism is not. So again, prayer is number one. We need to pray, God, do this. Verse 38. But along with that, we need to become evangelistic. Let me tell you what evangelism is not. As we borrow four ideas, we're skipping some that he gave. But number one, write this down. Evangelism is not just sharing your personal testimony. You ought to share your testimony when you are witnessing to someone. When you're sharing your faith, share your testimony. Some of you out there right now, you've heard it over and over. I won't go through it all. You've heard this. 1979, I'm nine years old. You've heard Bible camp, maybe even Ben Lippin Bible camp. You've heard second Wednesday night in June of 1979. Perhaps you remember hearing Mount Olive Baptist Church. You may remember hearing about my granddad and predominantly about a fellow named Ed Yeoman. Listen, I've said that over and over and over. Listen carefully. In none of that have I given the gospel. In none of that have I given the gospel. You ought to give your testimony. Because when I give that, one thing I'm showing is that salvation occurs at a time. I wasn't saved and then I was saved. So people need to understand, you're not always a Christian. I've been a Christian all my life. No, I became a Christian in 1979. When did you become a Christian? Share your testimony, but sharing your testimony is not evangelism. Number two, being evangelistic and evangelism is not social action or political involvement. That is not evangelism, right? Taking a stand against abortion is a great thing. Feeding needy people and clothing needy people is a great thing, okay? Political involvement. Christians ought to be involved in the political process. That's a fine, wonderful thing. None of that is evangelism. Taking a stand against drunk drivers and taking a stand against pornography and its effect through our land and taking a stand against any kind of sin, that is not evangelism. That's fighting for the morality of our country and for the needs of the poor. That's what that is. It's great stuff. That's not evangelism. Number three, evangelism is not apologetics. And we're for apologetics. You say, what in the world is apologetics? It's giving thoughtful, biblically-based, historical evidences and proofs of the Christian faith and of the Bible. But I want to be real clear here. Defending creation to someone, even defending the virgin birth and even defending the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's a literal bodily event in history. We can get very good at doing those things, but if we stop at that without getting to the meaning behind that that has to do with the gospel, then we are not evangelizing. So it's more. And too many people stop short at apologetics. In this next one, I'll explain just a little further. Dever writes that it is not the results of evangelism. Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. You say, what? Evangelism is not the results of evangelism. 
I'm going to break in and out of a long quote from Dever. Catch it. Evangelism, you say, what is it? You keep using this word. What's this whole thing you're talking about? Evangelism is simply telling the good news. There it is. He says, evangelism is simply telling the good news. It does not include making sure the other person responds to it correctly. Translation, evangelism is not you making sure people get saved. That is not evangelism. You say, then what is it? Evangelism is simply telling the good news. That's your part and mine. He continues. The fruit of evangelism, that means they get saved. The fruit of evangelism comes from God. God's the one who does the saving. Not you or I. We can't make them. And if you start thinking I'm going to pressure them and trick them and use some, some really fluid and perfected tactics, that's you. You may be leading someone into a false profession of faith. We don't get the credit for the results of evangelism, nor do we take the blame for the results, for a negative result of our evangelism not leading to someone's salvation. Dever writes the following. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners. Just declare it. To warn men of their lost condition. To direct them to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. He writes the following. We don't fail in our evangelism if if we faithfully present the gospel and yet the person is not converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully present the gospel at all. We don't fail if they don't get converted if we faithfully presented the gospel. Where we fail is if we don't present the gospel at all. So you're in Romans 10.1. Look just down the page, or next page. I want us to read verse 13 to 17 in closing this morning. We saw an overview of the ministry of the Lord. And we saw His compassion. His ministry was helpful And it was hopeful. And that needs to define our ministry. We need to be helpful to people in practical ways. But our whole message should be hopeful. But it needs to be bathed and preceded in prayer. And then we need to be evangelistic. Why? Look at verse 13. And man, I'm jumping in the middle of a longer section. For clarification, when we're talking about the Lord, the preceding verses are very clear on a couple of things. The Lord is Jesus Christ. This profession is that Jesus is the Lord. All right, and it's all based in faith. The whole point of chapter 10 is about faith. It's literally tying back to chapter 4. There I go, I've got to stop. Look at verse 13. Here we go. Fact. Here's the foundational fact of this text that we're reading. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What that means, and I'm, I'm not harming the text. Go read the verses before it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in faith will be saved. What it means is that Jesus is the Lord, verses 9 and 10. What you're doing, the Bible is saying that every person who calls on the Lord realizes that Jesus is the Lord, takes Him as their Lord, and believes that He died on the cross and rose again from the dead. That's how we get saved. Again, that's verses 9 and 10. Now look at verse 13 again. I'm going to read through, and then we'll come back and make our final comments. Look at verse 13. I'm going to read to verse 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching doesn't have to mean like this. It literally means sharing the faith, sharing the message, exhorting them, teaching them, and then exhorting them to respond, come to a verdict and respond to this. How are they to do that without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You say, so if we do that, then everybody will get saved. No, 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 Paul's a realist. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Many hear the gospel and they don't obey. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Lord, who's believed? And so kind of concluding this thought, verse 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing. Got to hear. And hearing, it's very specific, hearing through the word of Christ. Has to be the word about Christ. One more time, I'm going to fly through that. Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of faith, through the word of Christ. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the good news. Salvation is available. That's the good news. Here's the gospel. Salvation from our sins and eternal life in heaven and escape from eternal hell is available, but it is only available by faith. Very specific content matters. It is available only by faith in Jesus Christ. You have some verses there in your handout. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse number 12 says... There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, only the name of Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not, listen to this, he who does not have the Son does not have life. Literally, there's only one way to heaven. If there was another way to heaven, the New Testament would have told us. It doesn't. It doesn't tell us any other way. It would have told us. What it says is there's one way. It is only by faith, and it is only by faith in Christ. And what our text, as we finish this morning, is this. All who call on Christ in faith, I believe. I'm calling you my Lord. I'm receiving you as my Lord. I'm turning from my sin. I believe your death on the cross was for me. I'm receiving you as my Lord by faith. All of those are are saved. All of them are saved. Well, then why doesn't everybody do that? Okay? Only believers will call. Only believers. Hey, how come you didn't call on the Lord? I didn't believe. I didn't believe in it. Well, why didn't you believe? I never heard. You never heard what? I never heard of Jesus. Y'all know there are people on the planet today. They haven't called on the name of the Lord because they don't believe in Jesus. Why don't you believe in Jesus? Never heard of Jesus. Literally, they've never heard of Jesus. Why haven't you heard? No one's preached to me. No one's taught it to me. Why hasn't someone taught it to you? They haven't been sent here yet. The harvest is plentiful. I think what Jesus is saying is the potential, the need, the readiness, the reward is great. They're going to come, but you need to pray for some laborers and then ask the Lord to give you understanding of the gospel. Ask the Lord to give you a burden and compassion and love. And then ask the Lord to save very specific people. And implicit in all of that is go share the faith. Go share the gospel that you understand. If you would, bow your heads just for a moment, just for a moment. I'm going to invite you, after I pray, 
You don't have to do this if you don't want to. Some are going to do this, praise the Lord. I'll be excited to see what comes of it. I'm going to invite you in a moment after I pray. I use my phone. I don't know what you need to use. But on my phone, I have, um, I have a, an alarm system. I've set it for a specific time. And the next week, I want to invite you, after we pray, would you hold on to those notes that you wrote today? And there were four specific things, and I want to invite you, let's fulfill verse 37 and 38 this coming week between now and next Sunday, and let's literally find the, I mean, you set an alarm, whatever time it is where you know you can take just a few minutes, get in tune with God, and you can pray earnestly, and in that time, you're going to say, God, would you raise up God, would you give me an understanding of the gospel? God, would you give me a greater burden and such a love and a compassion for people that I can't keep the gospel to myself? And then, Lord, would you save this specific person or people? Saw someone Friday. Became very clear to me he's not a Christian. I prayed for him Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Who would the Lord have you pray for? Father, you've, Lord, you've heard this attempt at, at preaching. But Lord, I'm very thankful that you are greater than anything that I say or try to say. And Lord, you're greater than any technological problems that we may have. Lord, you can take this text and burn it into our hearts. And Lord, I ask you, I ask you around the world, around the United States and around South Carolina and all around Anderson. But Lord, certainly, in grace of you, would you raise up an army of evangelistic Christians? Lord, would you give us an understanding of the gospel? And Lord, how to make a compelling, not a pressure presentation, but Lord, a compelling and accurate presentation of the gospel. And Lord, to do whatever it takes to learn to do that. And Lord, as we listen and hear and read our Bibles and something becomes a way for us to do it even better, Lord, that you'll prick our heart and we'll pay attention, we'll write it down and we'll implement it and we'll start using it really quickly. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that with the person that I've been praying for. And then, Lord, would you just not just give us a greater understanding, but, Lord, a greater burden for the lost. Lord, help us to see them as face down, helpless, pinned by the neck, dying, suffocating, and without us even hearing it, they're actually unknowingly crying for help, admitting by their life and their desperation that they're dying. Lord, give us a burden for those kind of people. Help us to look past the smiles and the nice clothes and the fake laugh. Lord, let us see the need. Lord, let us see the opportunity. And then, Lord, save that man that I saw at the tire store Friday. Lord, save those that our people are right now asking you to save. And let the evangelism start with us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thank you for your attention. It's a little after 12 already, so I'm going to let you go. Listen, look forward to seeing you next week. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to. Uh, thank you for your faithful giving, your th- faithful prayer. But let's live for the Lord and worship Him and also share faith this week. Pray for the Lord for an open door. Look forward to seeing you next week. Come with your hearts ready for the Lord's Supper. Amen.